my name is Julie Hull, and my husband is Stacy Hull. We have two children, our daughter Chase, who's in sixth grade, and we have a son named Austin, who's in fifth grade. Um, we've been to uh, Centra Kid for the last three years, and I've been able to go and um, help out with that as a chaperone. Um, it was a wonderful experience for all of us. Um, so a few years ago, we were searching for a new church home, and we had some friends, and uh, we were just you know, church shopping, I guess you would call it. And one week they would pick a church, and one week we would pick a church. Um, anyways, we came in, and um, it was the first church um, that all four of us um, liked. And um, so we, we came back the next week and the next week, and um, about a year later uh, we joined um, the church. Um, my children and my husband were baptized in November of last year. And um, at that point, we were able to join the church. Um, well, I have been employed for the last 18 years by the same person. And uh, we have done uh, numerous things over the years. And um, about four years ago, we went on a new venture and um, started up a technology company. So that's what I've been doing uh, for the last four years. And um, about six years ago, I felt that God was calling me to leave. Um, and I was afraid. But I was too afraid. We have two kids in private school. We had just bought a new house. We have two cars. It was just, it just didn't make sense. And so I chose to, you know, stay in my job. Um, knowing that I was living in disobedience. The last six years of work has been uh, quite tumultuous. Um, you know, it's been a lot. It's been very stressful. You know, doing a startup is, is stressful. Um, I wear a lot of hats. Um, I handle all the day-to-day -day operations. Six years ago, when I felt that calling, part of it was my fear of, you know, my own personal life. But another part of it was, I can't just walk away from this. Um, I can't just leave them with, you know, nobody to do all the stuff that I do. The past few months, I feel like something has been, you know, telling me to leave. And um, just things happening at work, um, just feeling these inner uh, promptings to that, that something's fixing to this, something's fixing to happen. Something is fixing to happen. A couple weeks ago, um, I got a text message from my boss. Lots of little things have been happening, like just wanting me to work more. And what I'm doing is never enough. Not enough. It's not enough. We need you to do more. We need you to do more. We need you to hear more. And that's kind of not what I had signed up for. Um, I was This was supposed to be a flexible job where I could still be the working mom, uh, working nine to three, still being able to be at home when my kids got home. Went to work on Thursday, and um, my boss snapped at me, and um, I snapped back. And that's not who I want to be, that's not the person I am, and that's not the person that I want to be, especially in that where I am most of the time. And um, Thursday night I went home and cried myself to sleep. And my husband was like, you know, why do you do this? Why? It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. And um, so Friday, I went in and talked to my boss for two and a half hours. And um, I came away from that um, 
with the thought that he, he had told me that my kids or my family was a distraction. And I took, and I don't know if that's what he meant or if that's what he said, but that's what I heard. And what I heard was, you have a choice. You can choose your family or you can choose your job. And for me, that's an easy choice. And um, so I went home Friday and I told Stacy, I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to quit. And he fully supported me and, um, you know, said that he had been making provisions for this and um, um, was just was wanting me to do it and was wishing I had done it a long time ago. And um, so Sunday, um, I can't even remember what Lyle preached, but I came down and told him, I was like, God is telling me to quit my job. And there's no plan B. I don't have another job to go to. Um, we have two kids at private school. You know, we have a house payment. We have car payments. How are we going to do this? I mean, I have to work. Um, but he said it's going to be okay. God, I feel, just feel like God is telling me it's going to be okay. Well, in the midst of this, um, Susan is doing the um, uninvited study with by Lisa Turkhurst. And um, it goes so well with what I'm going through as far as... Um, you know, feeling that rejection. And, and that's what I felt at work. I just felt like what I was doing was not enough. Um, and when I did tell my boss, you know, what was going on, he was just like, yeah, you should just quit. And to have worked with somebody for that long and for them to just say, just just go on, we don't need you, it, just, it, it was a serious rejection I felt. And so to have that study on rejection and dealing with that and living loved, um, you know, through God and finding my peace and finding my strength and finding my, my self-worth, you know, in Him and not in my job um, was huge for me. Um, I walked in on Wednesday morning and told them that I had just finished running the payroll and that um, today was my last day. And they both, you know, mouths dropped, and today, <laughs> yeah, today. And um, I had also prayed that there would be no negativity from them either, and um, there wasn't. And they wished me well, and um, I was out of there by 8.30, and it was fabulous. Um, I, I drove home, and I cried, and it was tears of joy. Because I felt like the chains had been broken. I was in bondage and I didn't even realize it. I was chained to that job. I was chained to that paycheck. I was chained to that. And I didn't even realize it. I had no idea until I was free. And God set me free. Um, through setting up the series of circumstances. He, he had been working this for a long time. The last two weeks have just been amazing. I feel so free. I feel so happy. I feel joy. And I feel like I can breathe for the first time in a long time. And um, it's all because of God and what He has set up, the circumstances that He put in place so that I could feel this. Because He's going to take care of me. For so long, I've relied on myself and what I can do and the paycheck that I earn. And um, now I have to rely on him because I have no idea where the next paycheck is coming from. I have no idea. But I'm going to be still and I'm going to wait on him to tell me what the next paycheck is.
I was listening to another um, radio pastor, and he was talking about how uh, you obey God when it doesn't make sense. And that was huge for me because it does not make sense for me to quit my job. It doesn't make sense. We need the money. We need this. We need my income for us to be able to, you know, have the lifestyle that we have. We have got to have that. It doesn't make sense for me to quit. Um, but it didn't make sense for Abraham to go wandering in the desert without a map or without a destination. And it didn't make sense for David to go out with a sling and five stones to slay Goliath. And it didn't make sense for Moses to lead the children of Israel um, to a Red Sea. And it just didn't make sense. But that, what God calls us to do doesn't always make sense. We just have to uh, follow Him, be obedient, and do what He asks us to do. Julie mentioned a few weeks ago coming down and talking. And she's, she and I have been in dialogue. Susan and her have been in dialogue. And just to see God moving in her life is an amazing thing. I want to tell you, originally... We had a plan that we were going to uh, have a couple of videos today, um, one from Julie that you just saw and one from Miss uh, Rachel McCorkle, and here's what happened. God moved in both of those interviews to the point that we couldn't put them together in one day, and so we're going to hear from Miss Rachel in a couple of weeks, uh, but we wanted you to hear a testimony because um, we're talking about how our understanding of God impacts how we live. And sometimes it's easy to think that what we're talking about here is just kind of... Uh, Bible stuff or Sunday stuff, but this is stuff that's impacting and should impact our lives all the time. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. And today we're going to be talking about how we view God. And here's one of the things that I thought is uh, interesting, or one of the things that I thought about this week. How many of you here have ever taken an eye exam? How many of you have ever taken an eye exam here, right? How many of you have ever failed an eye exam? All right, some of you got glasses on. I can see that, right? And so, so, so what happens is they put this on the on the screen. They put you at a certain distance, and then you try to read those letters. Now, some of you are like, "I wish the screen was that big at my doctor's office." Right? Can I get an amen in the house? Right? They put it on a little bitty wall across the way, and there are very few moments in life when you feel less sure of yourself than when you get to that row that you really can't make out that well. Like, you know, you, you start off confidently with the, that's an E, I got an E, that's right. I got an F and a P, and they'll, then they'll say to you, read the smallest print you can read. And you look at one and you think, oh, I got this line. And then you start in about the third letter in, and you're like, uh-oh, is that a E or a C or an H? What is that, Right. And they start to run together. And the, the doctors want to find out, okay, what's your vision like? What do you see? What is happening there in your eyes? And so every once in a while, it's good for us to take a spiritual eye exam. It's important for us to say, okay, what does this look like? Or how do we know what we see about God is true? And here's the reason. This is probably the quote that I have read the most often in my nine years of ministry here. But it's so true and it's so impactful to me. A.W. Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above his religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. 
if you want to bring it down to, to the baseline level, when people ask all the time, what's wrong with our country? What's wrong with our churches? What's wrong with civilization? Here's what I will tell you, is that their eye chart on God, they cannot read correctly. They're failing the test. We're failing the test of understanding what God is like. This is serious business. Chip Ingram, talking about the Tozer quote, says, Nothing in all your life will impact your relationship with people, your view of yourself, your decisions, or your purpose, like the way you think of God will impact those. Everything in your life, consciously or unconsciously, comes back to one thing. Who do you, when you think of God in your heart, who do you think Him to be? And so for this next three weeks, we started last week, we're taking a look at God and who He is and what He's capable of, of the kind of God we serve. And the reason that we want to do that is because we have this tendency to take God and form Him into an image that is not who He is. We think of Him as similar to us, just a better, just on a higher level. But Scripture makes it very clear that God is not similar to us. He is not like us. He is not a little bit better than us. He is not a lot better than us. He is completely different than us. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, with no limits. But we seem to think, well, He's just... we we we. Take him and we put human characteristics on him and think it's just the highest form of that. Or we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. When I was growing up, there was a movie that uh, that scared me a little bit. Uh, it was a, a movie with the lead actor was a guy named Rick Moranis. I don't know if y'all remember that guy. He was a comedian, and he had a movie called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Anybody remember that movie? Okay, and in that movie, and this, this is quite a bit older, like I, I'm going to mention that movie in the second service, and this whole front's going to go, I don't know what you're talking about, all right? I mean, it's not that old, but it's old for them, right? But honey, I shrunk the kids. In that movie, he's an experimental scientist, and he accidentally shrinks his kids down to where they're like ant size, and they're running around the backyard. Well, a lot of us are responsible for or guilty of, honey, I shrunk my God. Now, I don't mean that you can actually do that, but in our thinking, we shrink him down. We make him almost into a genie in a bottle. That's not new. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, the writer says, Paul says, that they men, even though they knew of God, even though they understood there was a God, they have despised him. They have moved away from him. They have made him into something he is not. In the book of Job, remember Job had all those calamity happen to him. And Job's friends and Job questioned God, questioned God, questioned God. And there comes a point at the end of that in Job chapter 38 when God finally says, Quit it, Job. This is who I am. Where were you when I created the world? In Exodus 32, we're in Exodus on Wednesday nights. And we're not here yet, but in Exodus 32, Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law. <laughs> Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law of the Lord after he has led them out of Egypt out of bondage, through the Red Sea, and he gets up there, and the people said, we can't handle the unknowing. Let's make a God in our own image that we can serve, and a cow. We want our God on demand. Now that's because even for us, life has become more and more about what we want. 
My wife used to go to eat at a place that I didn't like to go eat at the place because I thought it was too expensive for something I didn't know how to order because there were 14 varieties of bread and I didn't know which bread to put on my sandwich. Okay, it's called Panera bread. Anybody been to Panera bread? I'm like, well, I don't know what kind of, uh, white is that an option? Country white uh, wonder bread. Do you have that? No, I want Asiago focaccia. That's what I want. All right. Yeah, I don't want any seeds on top of it. Let me get. I just want bread. All right. But then the other day, I discovered something amazing at Panera. It's the order kiosk. And when you go in and they have a kiosk, you know, a kiosk, little place set up, and you go in and you start to, you put in what kind of sandwich, and it lets you pick from a screen where you see pictures. I feel like a kid's menu has come back to me at Panera. And not only that, you get to customize your sandwich without judgment from the Panera people. You know, like, yes, I want double mayonnaise on my sandwich, and I don't want to see your eyes look at me that way, all right? I want it just like I want it. Just like I want it with that. It has on there, like, I thought this was funny. I want salt and pepper on it, on the sandwich. Every detail. Don't give me any of that green stuff. Just put meat on there and cheese and salt and pepper and mayonnaise, right? Because if you order that at the front, Panera, I think, doesn't let you come back to their store anymore. It's not healthy enough. But we want it just like we want it. And sometimes we approach God that way. And we think, God, if I go to church and I act good and I give money and I pray a little bit, then I've done my task and your job now is to give me a good marriage and to have my kids all turn out good. And then never allow bad things to happen to me. And allow me just to be... All the time, happy. Or we like to say, you know what, God, I really like some things about what, what I read in the Bible. There's some other things I'm not real hip on. Um, and I read this stuff on I read this stuff on Facebook the other day, or what my friend said, or I read it in a magazine. I really thought that was good. And so I'm going to kind of take that idea from there, and I'm going to take that idea from there. And it has become what is now sometimes scholars refer to as salad bar religion. You know what salad bar is, right? You go pick what you want. Put it on a plate, you go and eat it. And people say, my God, God, I really like the, the, the all loving. <laughs> I love the fact that, that you're gracious and you're kind. And I heard this thing the other day, a little bit of God inside of each of us. I think I'll take a little bit of that. And you know what? I, I heard on TV the other day there was an argument that, uh, that uh, you love us, you're good to us, but you know what? That, that this particular issue that, that you probably wouldn't support. And so I'm going to believe the person on TV instead of what your word says because I just like that a little bit better. And it all comes down to this salad bar religion or figuring out that we minimize God is we just forget what he has revealed to us. Through nature, we talked about last week that God is awesome through his word that we're going to be studying and through his son. So over the next three more weeks, we're going to talk about some big issues of what God is, who God is, as revealed by Scripture. And here's the thing. We're going to kind of tackle a really difficult one today. All right. We're going to trudge through some difficult water. This is one of those things that has tripped up people for years about what this means and how it works out. But it's important because this 
particular characteristic of God is perhaps the most important thing you can know when life does not go like you want it to go. You see, it's good to have an idea of who God is, and it's great to understand things about God, but the truth is that most of our lives are not lived in the ideal. And when life gets difficult, that's when the test of what we truly believe about God shows. It was a great philosopher named Mike Tyson who once said, you see, everybody has a plan till they get punched in the mouth. And when it comes to our understanding of God, everybody's got an idea of who God is until life punches them in the mouth. And if you're not assured of this one thing, if you're not assured of what we're going to talk about today, then you will not make it through those unscathed for sure. There are four questions everyone asks about God. Four questions that everybody has to know about God if they're going to follow Him, if they're going to believe in Him, if they're going to trust Him. And the first one is simply this. Is God in control? Is He really in control? You ever watch the news and wonder that? I saw a sign yesterday driving. We, we, uh, we were driving. We had family picture day yesterday, which we do every fall. And torture ourselves for an hour for some reason to get us all six in a picture together. As we were driving, we were out in the country going to where we were going to get our pictures taken. And there was a sign on a, a small church on the way that said, The Lord is coming soon, hopefully before the election. <laughs> and all of God's people said, Amen, right? You look around and you think, is he in control? And it's not just the big things, okay? It's not just elections. But it's also in your life. Your life seems to be spinning out of control. You're thinking, is, is God, does God see all this? Is God in control of this? Number two, the question we ask, is God able? Is he powerful enough? Does he have the ability to do it? And we talked about that some last week with God is awesome. We'll talk about it more next week. The third question is, okay, if God's in control and God is able, is God good? Because if he's powerful and able and in control, but he's not good, that's not good. And then the last question, which we'll deal in the last week of this series, does God care about me? Is he able? Is he in control? Is he good? And does he care? We're going to read today Isaiah chapter 45 because it answers one of those questions. That's the only, it's not the only place in the Bible that answers this question, but it is a place in the Bible that answers this question. And I want us to read it with an understanding of what's happening. And this is what we're going to talk about. So remember last week we talked about the one point I had is that God is awesome. Well, here's the one point for the day. Are you ready? It is one point and the one point only. God is sovereign. Say that with me. God is sovereign. Now, let me just make an observation that that was not as enthusiastic as last week's. Okay? Now, I really got into the God is awesome thing. Now, some of that comes from maybe, okay, what does that mean? Like, all right, he's sovereign. Like, I guess that means he's in control. Well, the definition is that he is above all or superior to all, that he is supreme in power or rank, that he is independent, that he is dependent on nothing. That God is the ruler of all, that he answers to no one, that he can accomplish whatever he wants. God is in control. 
One of my favorite stories from that idea is um, when I was in Fort Worth, Texas, we had a tornado hit Fort Worth. Um, and I was, Susan was at work and I had been at, at, at seminary and was at the apartment getting ready to go to work. I worked after seminary and it, it came through downtown Fort Worth. And as I was driving the next day, the aftermath was, was kind of going on and it was a pretty big one, but it wasn't one that had made massive destruction, but it had damaged buildings in Fort Worth down the stockyards and downtown and all of that. I, I was listening to the local Christian radio station and this woman called in. And she said, I just want you to know something. She said, yesterday I was downtown. I was in the midst of this storm. And the tornado was rolling through downtown Fort Worth. I was in a parking garage where I could see the tornado coming down. And she said, while it was coming down, you were playing the Twyla Paris song, God is in control. I just, in that moment, had this picture of the fact that The tornado is raging down the street, and yet the affirmation is still being made. God is in control. Now, back to my favorite theologian pastor, A.W. Tozer. He says this about God's sovereignty. To be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. He said, if there is one bit of knowledge in the universe which he does not have, he cannot be sovereign. If there is one infinitesimal amount of power he does not possess, he cannot be sovereign. And if there is one stray atom of power belonging to someone else over him, he cannot be sovereign. Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. Thus says this to Cyrus, his anointed. Now, now we got to find, okay, who's Cyrus? You know the great prophet Cyrus, right? No, there's not one, right? Cyrus was a king, right? Who's Cyrus the king of? Anybody remember? He was a Persian of the Medo-Persian Empire, all right? And so here's the story of Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of a Medo-Persian empire. You think, okay, that doesn't tell me anything. All right? At the time that Isaiah is writing, the biggest world power is Babylon. And before long, Babylon would take over almost the entire Middle East, parts of Asia, Africa. The Babylonian empire would be the largest in history at that point. And in biblical terms, we know that when the Babylonian Empire spread like that, that some of the Israelites were taken to Babylon. Anybody remember the most famous Israelite taken to Babylon? Daniel, right? And while Daniel is there, there are all kinds of kings. There's Nebuchadnezzar, there's Darius, there's other kings that are there while Daniel's life. And Daniel goes when he's probably his early teens. And when Daniel gets to be an old man... A new world power forms. The Medes and the Persians combine. And the Medo-Persian Empire begins. And the king of the Medo-Persians is Cyrus. A Persian. In October 12, 539 B.C., they sweep in, take over Babylon. And the first thing he does is he walks in front of the captives, gets them all gathered and says, I am going to send you all home. 
And the history records that he was so good to the Jews that he let them go into the Babylonian stockpiles and retrieve all of their worship, memorabilia, and jewelry, and important items and take it with them. Now here's what's interesting, okay? There is no, no evidence in Scripture or tradition that Cyrus was ever a follower of God. And yet here the Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed. Now, I want to tell you how that word would be translated in the Greek. In the Greek, it would be translated, the Lord says to Cyrus, his Christ. The Lord says to Cyrus in Hebrew, his Messiah. It's not saying that Cyrus is Jesus, and it's not saying that Cyrus is the Messiah, what it's saying is that he, God has put his anointing on him for this particular purpose. Now, here's why that's important, okay? Follow with me for a second. God is telling Isaiah a couple of hundred years before it happens the particular name of the king that's going to overthrow Babylon and then let his people come back to their homeland. God is telling him a couple of hundred years before it happens the specific details of how his people are going to return from the captivity that hasn't even happened yet. This isn't a vague Nostradamus prediction. This is not your fortune cookie that says that in the next 20 days something good's going to happen to you. This is God before Cyrus was born declaring the name of the one who would deliver his people even though he is not one of his people or an Israelite but a foreign king. And the point there is that God is in absolute control of everything. Look what it continues to say. Thus says the Lord, His anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before Him, to disarm kings, to open the doors before Him, and the gates will not be shut. He's saying, listen, I've chosen Him. I've grabbed Him by the hand. I'm going to lead Him to subdue nations, to disarm kings, to open the doors. And we could talk about this with His God good. The whole purpose for Cyrus to do that was so that His people could be set free. He goes on to say this. I will go before you. And level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from secret places. So that you may know that I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, call you by your name. He goes on to say this. I call you by your name because of my Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I give a name to you, though you do not know me. This is Isaiah speaking to people that were beginning to turn their backs on God. And God says, listen, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to choose you. And even a guy that's not a part of my family, I'm going to use to bring back. He goes on to say this. I am Yahweh. There is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me. So that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. And then he says this, one of the strangest things in all of Scripture, but important for this discussion. I am Yahweh and there is no other. You think he wants them to realize there's no other God? And then he says, 
I form light and create darkness. I make success and create that disaster. I, Yahweh, do all these things. He looks out over history and he says that Cyrus, I'm going to use this man to deliver my people. He was very generous to the Israelites. He let them go back to their homeland that set up the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls. He gave back their worship treasures. In the midst of that, God says, I am the one that is in absolute control. I read this week of Napoleon during the midst of his great conquest. In the midst of his great conquest, Napoleon was asked by someone these amazing feats that were happening. It seemed like every battle they were outnumbered or they shouldn't have won. But because of tactical advantage or because of great skill or because of a particular strength in a particular area they won. Someone said, Napoleon, do you think God is on the side of France? And Napoleon responded, I believe God is on the side of the heaviest artillery. And then this little thing called Waterloo happened, where Napoleon lost badly. And it is reported that on an island of exile several years later, he quoted Thomas Akempis, who said, Man proposes, but God disposes. He said, I thought I was in control, but God is. Look at this verse. I am Yahweh. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Is there anything there that troubles you or makes you have a question or wonder about? He creates light. We're pretty good with that, right? Pretty good with the successes, right? What about darkness? What about disaster? You see, one of the things that has to be reality is if God is in control, that means God is in absolute control. And people say, well, there are two questions I have about that. First of all, if God's in absolute control, he does whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, with whatever he wants. Are we just puppets here playing a game and God is controlling us? Are we destined to be who we are and the way we live and who's saved and who's not saved and how the world goes and he's condemned some and he's saved some? How are we played out in the midst of that? And here's what I want to tell you. According to Scripture, God is in absolute control. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whom he wants. And we have choice on this earth. God determines everything. Nothing is out of his control. Everything that happens, happens under the vision of God. And God gives us free will to make our own choices. Say, can you explain that any better? No. I don't understand how it happens. Because scripture tells me that God is in complete control, that we can't make a decision that will thwart his plan. And God gives us free will to do whatever we want and make the decisions we want to make. When I get to heaven, I'm going to watch... John Calvin debate about free will and sovereignty of man. Sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? So, well, how do you explain that? I, I don't know. Here's what I, I do. I have heard a couple of ex- illustrations that I really like. The first one is this, is that um, imagine for a minute that we're all on a cruise to England. That'd be okay, right? Well, maybe not right now. There's kind of the storm in the Atlantic, but... 
Imagine we're on a cruise ship to England and we're traveling from New York City to London on a cruise ship. That cruise ship is going from New York to London, but the whole time the cruise ship is going from New York to London, on that ship, you and I can do whatever we want to do on that ship. Right? And some of you are going to go watch shows and some of you are just going to stay at the buffet line and some of you are going to go lounge by the pool. But it doesn't matter what you do in that moment, because guess where the ship is going to end up? In London. And God's will, in some ways, is like that. Now, there's no perfect illustration, but we're on a journey. God's kingdom is going to be consummated, and what happens along the way determines the quality of what we're doing while we get there and how we get there, but we're eventually all going to get there. Or I heard another example of someone that found a way to play a chess master in a park in Thailand. And while they're in the chess master, playing the chess master in a park in Thailand, the chess master is not playing one-on-one chess. The chess master has 15 guys he's playing at one time. And while he's going down the line, he makes a move and goes to the next guy and makes a move and makes a move. And the guys are set there trying to figure out how to beat this chess master. And he's beating 15 guys at once. Because he knows the moves that they're going to make when he makes the moves he's going to make, he knows how it's all going to play out in his mind with all 15 at one time. And the one guy can't figure out where to move his palm. He said, God's like that with us. We think we're going to make a move and God knows how to counter every move of billions of people at once. The second question is, okay, so we're not puppets. We have our choice. And this is the one that really hits people. If God's in complete control, why is there so much suffering? I watched this week as Matthew hit Haiti. And my first question out of my mouth, I'm a trained theologian, done Ph.D. studies in theology. I've written 20-page papers on the problem of evil with documentation from sources for centuries. And the first question out of my mouth when I saw the news report about Haiti was, why Haiti? I mean, it just feels like the devastation of that earthquake was beginning to have some relief. And it's still a poor country. It's not great. And then the hurricane. If God's in control, why can the winds blow it just a little bit east of there? Philip Yancey says that if God is able to do whatever God is able to do, then at every tragedy that happens in life, we must admit that in some way God sat on his hands and let it happen. Now, that's not easy talk, right? What that verse say, though? God gives light and darkness. Success and disaster. Now here, let me just say something real quick. I don't for a minute think that God intentionally said, I'm going to get the people of Haiti now. And I think we have to understand the problem of evil from a big perspective, including the fact that we live in a fallen world and the consequences of our sin is much greater than we ever imagined. That when Adam and Eve chose to sin in Genesis chapter 3, it set our 
earth on a course that led to natural disasters and problems and all kinds of things. We have to acknowledge that you and I have a sin problem and that when we sin, it hurts other people and it hurts ourselves. We have to admit that the people around us have a sin problem. I mentioned the election jokingly earlier, but anybody that thought we were going to find a perfect human being on any side of any political spectrum is fooling themselves because we are sinful people who are impacted greatly by the sins of other people and it impacts us as a nation and as individuals. Our sin and others. But there is also this reality in Scripture that God is in control. And I don't understand how it's all going to work together, but we see through a glass dimly and He sees clearly. Romans 8.28 For God works together for good all things for those who know him, love him, called according to his purpose. Story of Joseph, what God, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so, Scripture makes very clear, Isaiah makes very clear that God is sovereign. And God is sovereign, can I tell you three quick things that means for you and me? If you've got somewhere to write down, write down these three things. If God is sovereign... We can trust Him completely. You know what I love about Julie Hull's story? <laughs> when she told me that, this is one of those confessions as a pastor. Like, I talked to her afterwards. I was like, so what's your plan? Like, well, what are you, you, you going to do next? What, what, I know you got a plan. What's your plan? She goes, I don't. Like, wait, wait a minute, Julie. What's your plan? She goes, I don't have a plan. She said, I'm just trusting God. Just trusting God. Isn't that a novel concept? I don't have the finances off. You heard her talk about, right? Kids in private school, something they feel convicted about, they're supposed to do. She, you know, They've been living off of two incomes. They've gone to one income. It doesn't make any sense. I don't have it figured out, but I trust God and He's going to take care of it. I don't know if you know this, but statistics show that in America today we have a giving problem in our churches, that people aren't tithing, people aren't giving to churches like they once did. In fact, I read a study this week that just blew my mind that said if you look at who gives to the church, if you look at percentages, that the poorer you are, the more faithful and the bigger percentage you generally give. You know why? Because the more you get, the more you want to keep. And it's not a money problem, it's a trust problem. If God's sovereign, trust Him. Secondly, if God is sovereign, quit complaining. I didn't get an amen one out of that. Quit complaining. It means that God knows about and has something to do with wherever you are in this moment in life. And every moment you complain, you're questioning the sovereignty of God. I'm going to say that again. Because some people in the church, I'm not pointing fingers and nobody out there point fingers. But in church and in life in general, people have a natural language of complaint. There's this little place on Facebook called Hip Goodlettsville. I don't even know what Hip Goodlettsville stands for. Except it's become a place where people complain about everything that happens in Goodlettsville. It's supposed to be a place where you can go, hey, I need somebody to do work. Can I have somebody to work? Or look at the great things that are happening. And people are complaining about how fast they're getting their food at McDonald's. 
Aren't you glad complaining is not a part of the church? Complaint is an affront to the sovereignty of God. And here's the last thing. If God is sovereign, we can rest. One of the most neglected doctrines in the Bible, for my generation in particular, but for us in life, is the principle of the Sabbath. And I do not mean by we want all the stores closed on Sunday. I'm talking about being able to relax and understanding you don't have to work it all out. You don't have to do it all that you can trust God with your time and with your life. Somebody said, I need more hours in the day to get everything done. I need to get done. My answer to that is then you've got stuff you're trying to do that you don't need to get done. Because you know what? You don't need 24-7 to get everything done. God's principle is you need 24-6. You need a day. You need a time. You need a space in your life. And the reason, the way you can tell whether you truly believe in the sovereignty of God is this. Do you worry? Because if you're worried, you're not trusting Him. Do you complain? Because if you complain, you don't trust Him. And do you rest? Because if you don't, you don't trust Him. Let's pray together.